Good morning, church. It's always good to be with you all and to join ourselves corporately for the sake of Jesus. And it's uh, always a privilege to preach. I, um, I actually didn't look at the schedule. As you know, we, we preach through our member, or we pray through our member list for that pastoral prayer. And I was awfully blessed by uh, Dave's prayer for me and my family. Um, and uh, because I hadn't looked at the schedule, because I wasn't the one doing it, um, I was quite surprised. So I count that as a real blessing. And I hope today, again, to be faithful to the task and to continue in the work that God has uh, given me for his name and for your sake. And so as we continue in Exodus, today we will be in chapter 15, picking up where Pastor Dave left off last week. We'll be in verses 22 through 27. And if you remember... We looked at the Song of Moses last week, and uh, Dave wonderfully pointed out to us that this song serves as a systematic theology of sorts. Moses' song deals with sin, with judgment, covenant love, salvation, inheritance, and the glory of God among the nations. And in each of these topics throughout the song they all point to one thing, and that is the glory of God and his perfect, incomparable nature. And so we have to keep this in mind as we enter into the rest of this chapter. We have to have a vision of this, the incomparable nature of the Lord our God, so that we can best understand today's text. For we cannot rightly divide the scriptures if we first do not see them as a whole. Obviously, we want to be people who look intently to the scriptures and glean every joy and every blessing and every detail from them. But it's also important that we look at the story, the narrative being given. And we pick up on the themes and the details. And so I'm I'm hoping to help Uh, see some of those today and so if you will uh, I know you just got comfortable but stand if you are able in the reading of God's word starting in verse 22 then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur they went three days in the wilderness and found no water when they came to Marah they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, And do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Let us pray. 
Lord, we praise your name. We have gathered here that we would collectively seek your face, that you might speak to us today, that we might be reminded of your covenant promises and blessings, that we would walk in the joy of forgiveness of sin, and that we would be taught by your spirit and your word. And so I pray that you would accomplish all those things today. We need you. Uh, every hour, we need you. And I ask that your spirit would move in our midst this morning, that we would be holy as you are holy. And Lord, please, again, be magnified in us and through us for your name's sake. Thank you for your word, and uh, it's all for you. And so we do this now in worship of your name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> and so, as the text tells us, Israel has, at this point, crossed the Red Sea, okay? They've crossed the Red Sea. They have sung the song of Moses, which is this great song about the Lord their God. And now Moses leads them through the wilderness of Shur. They go three days without water. Three days without water. And this is no small thing. They were undoubtedly very thirsty, as I believe we all would. And we see in the text, they finally came to a place, verse 23, but they could not drink the water because it was bitter. And so they named the place Mara, which means bitterness. If, you, if that is reminiscent, uh, this is what Naomi says her name has been changed to because she has to leave her kinsmen and she's without, she's empty. And so she says, call me Mara. And so it literally just means bitterness. And so they name the place that because of the bitter water. And you have to remember, we have probably around 2 million people wandering together in the wilderness. I have, we've come to that number because the text tells us earlier that there were 600,000 men, not including women and children. And so men presumably were married so you can double that to 1.2 million and you just add kids and we'll just call it 800,000. So, boom, we have about 2 million people. That's a lot of people. That's more people than the, the population of the state of Vermont. Okay, but considerably. Um, and so just imagine this. You have an entire nation moving through the wilderness without water for three days. Three days. And, the, and they finally arrive to a place that seemingly has sufficient water. So this is probably a very large spring or a river of sorts. Because again, you're trying to quench the thirst of uh, perhaps two million people. It's no small stream or small wadi in the desert. This is a large, presumably a large enough body of water to quench all of their thirst. And yet it's bitter. It's bitter. We don't know why the water is bitter. It could have been sourced by a bad spring or it could have been contaminated with all sorts of things that effectively make it poisonous. And that's what this word connotates. It, it, it means it, it's not just bitter in taste. It, it's actually bad for them. It's, it's non-potable water. They cannot drink it. It would either make them extremely sick or would kill them. So the water is no good. And so, as I said, Israel names this place Mara because of its bitterness. And because they cannot drink it, and they've been three days without it, they are genuinely thirsty. 
And so just for a moment, imagine what six hours without a glass of water feels like. And now think of that as being three days. So their thirst is understandable. It's quite understandable. But surely worry and panic begins to ensue as they wonder if they're all going to die from thirst. However, something begins to change in them. It's not just the water that is bitter, but now Israel is becoming bitter. Because just three days prior, they actually craw, they, they sung the song of Moses. They celebrated the victory of God and his provision from enslavement in Egypt to conquering their enemies to being established and being born again as the people of God through the Red Sea. Just three days prior, they were singing God's praises. And while their thirst is understandable, I believe you, you can see that the seeds of unbelief are starting to take root. They had a victory in which the Lord literally commanded the waters to be moved. The waters were spread. Israel passes through safely. Egypt is consumed. The Lord their God literally commanded the waters to move and they moved. And so again, what started as genuine thirst and a very real need. And, and I think you can begin to see things in your own life that are real. They're not far off, but genuine difficulties, genuine pressing circumstances. And so it was an understandable concern, and yet it has turned into grumbling against Moses, and in effect is grumbling against the Lord. By now, Israel should know. They should know that everything is not as it seems. The Lord has continually provided their deliverance and their victory at every step of the way, despite what they could see with their eyes. If you remember, just before the crossing of the Red Sea, Pharaoh's heart was hardened one last time, and he pursued Israel to the sea after they had gone a roundabout way in Egypt's wilderness. And Israel is faced with the sea before them and Pharaoh and his army behind them. And they murmur and they complain and they ask of Moses, did you bring us out here just so we could die here instead of in Egypt? And the Lord actually responds with a bit of indignance. He says, why are you crying to me? He tells Moses, command the people, tell them, move forward. But as we're going to see, his response here is a little different, and we'll explain why. But they should know that not everything is as it seems. What looked like sure death from behind actually ended in their victory over the powers of Egypt. What looked like perpetual enslavement actually was God's just judgment against the gods of Egypt. And so at every step of the way, God's provision has been made manifest and his faithfulness has been revealed. They should know that not everything is as it seems. And yet, 
the seeds of complaint begin to grow into trees of unbelief. But what happens next? Verse 25 says, And he cried to the Lord, speaking of Moses. And what does the Lord do? The Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. It's very strange. So now we have Moses crying to the Lord. This, this word means he's pleading. He's, he's begging with this fierceness, okay? This isn't just a, a small prayer, but this is him with real emotion saying, Lord, help! Because the people, two million of them, are grumbling against him. And he is the mediator between God and Israel. He's thinking, what's going on? What's going on? He cries to the Lord. He cries on their behalf. And something remarkable happens. Rather than the bit of indignation we saw before the Red Sea crossing, the Lord just provides relief. He shows Moses a log and Moses knows what to do. He takes it and he throws it in the water. That word for log could also be tree. It's the uh, same word used. So we don't know how big this thing is. Maybe he had Israel's help in hauling it into the water. It's not really the point. But I think what you will see soon is, is why? Why the log? So the Lord shows him this tree and Moses understands that he has to put it into the water. And lo and behold, the waters turn sweet. They're now potable. They're safe to drink. It's good tasting water. And we all know what good tasting water tastes like. So if some of you don't know that I, um, I own and operate a window cleaning business and I have equipment that purifies water and it li literally takes all the minerals out of the water. It takes all the total dissolved solids out and it's completely safe to drink. In fact, it's probably the safest water you could drink, but it tastes terrible because there's no minerals in it. It, it, it really tastes bad. Now, it's not bitter water, but it lacks the refreshing quality that we all have associated with good water. And so I imagine that this sweet-tasting water has this perfect formula of minerals and salts and things like that so that it is this satisfying water that provides a level of nourishment because it's filled with these natural minerals and things. It's good to the taste. It's sweet. And that's what the Lord gives. All in response to Moses throwing this log into the water. And so now I think it's helpful to point out there's a pattern here. And we're gonna, we've seen the pattern already, but it's going to unfold again and again in the book of Exodus. And this is the pattern. Israel grumbles and complains. Moses cries to the Lord, and the Lord provides for his people. You can't miss the pattern. It's telling of the nature of Israel and the bitterness within. At one point, Israel is so hard-hearted that the Lord, I mean, I'm jumping ahead way here, but the Lord tells Moses, I'm going to give you a new nation. I'm really tired of these people. <laughs> 
And Moses pleads with the Lord, don't do it, don't do it. It's your covenant promises. It's your covenant promises. And the text says that God relents as if he changed his mind. We know God didn't change his mind, but it, it, that in and of itself is a test, a test for the people and a test for Moses. And as we'll see later, this too is a test. But we have Moses, again, cries to the Lord. The Lord immediately, immediately brings relief. But it's through a sign. It's through an act. Okay? It doesn't just change. But there's an act involved. And then we now see the pattern being established. Israel grumbles and complains. Moses pleads on behalf of the Lord. The Lord delivers. This is what happened right before the Red Sea crossing. It's happening again. And we're going to see it in almost every chapter of Exodus subsequently. And, and that's what's so striking is the difference between this and the Red Sea crossing is that the Lord does not rebuke Moses as he does at the Red Sea, nor the people. But instead, he immediately provides a cure for the water in order to nourish Israel. John Calvin says this about the whole ordeal. I found this quote quite helpful. He says this, Herein shone forth the inestimable mercy of God who deigned to change the nature of the water for the purpose of supplying such wicked and rebellious and ungrateful men. He might have given them sweet water to drink at first, but he wished by the bitter to make prominent the bitterness which lurked in their hearts. He might too have corrected by his mere will the evil in the waters so that they should have grown sweet spontaneously. It is not certain why he preferred to apply the tree except to reprove their foolish impiety by showing that he has many remedies in his power for every evil. So what he's getting at is saying, we don't know for certain why the Lord chose a log to be thrown into the water except for to prove to Israel that my ways are higher. That you should not trust in what you can see because I will do what I want. And that is amazing. And this is reminiscent of the, song, of the stanza in the Song of Moses. In verse 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Talking about Egypt. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Probably never in a million years would Israel have anticipated the splitting of the waters at the Red Sea and the fact that they walked on dry land while the same waters come crushing, crashing down and crushing the men of Pharaoh's army. And yet this is how the Lord delivers them. And in the same way, never in a million years would they have imagined God would tell Moses, throw a tree in the water and it will be healed. But the point is not the tree but rather that God's ways are higher and there is none like him. And he continually shows faithfulness to his people time and time again. And so through the bitter water and the subsequent provision of the tree, the Lord proves his character and his nature. 
And so once again, Israel should sing that song of Moses. Once again, they should say, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? None. The answer is none. However, the Lord's not only showing his greatness, okay, and his ability to provide by sending immediate relief. He has also now revealed his fatherly disposition towards Israel. We have to remember that the Red Sea crossing is a baptism for the nation of Israel. We know from the New Testament that they were baptized into Moses at the crossing. And Moses is the covenant representative of the law. And this was a covenant being formed. And so they're crossing the sea as a baptism into this covenant with God. And it is their public identity that they have been reborn. They have experienced a new birth. They have been recreated as the children of God. It's their visible entrance into covenant community with the Lord. And so those waters marked Israel as the true church of God. So therefore, despite the seeds of unbelief beginning to take root, the Lord looks to his people. He looks to his children as the sheep of his pasture. And he tends to their needs in covenant love. Notice the difference between the baptism. Before, he tells Moses, why are you crying to me? Just do what I say. Tell Israel, go forward. I have provided their, their salvation. You have to walk in it. And now, again, grumbling and complaining for no reason, a genuine concern with their thirst, but has not the Lord already shown his goodness to them? Has he not already defeated their enemies? And instead of correcting again, he comes like a loving father. He provides immediately the relief needed. And this is because of his covenant love. That, that's a loaded word. It, it's from the original language, chesed. Chesed, which some Bibles translate as steadfast love, loving kindness, faithful love. But what is it? It's a loyalty. It's a love bound in loyalty. Because it's covenantal. Covenants make up the Bible. And the covenant that we now walk in as Christians has been inaugurated and basically consecrated in Christ. But it's a fulfillment of all the previous covenants. And so even here, we're seeing God's faithfulness to his people because of what he first said to Abraham. So a new covenant is being established, but it's bound on the Abrahamic one where he says, I will be your God and the God of your children and your children's children. And God struck that covenant on himself. Abraham, if you remember that story, Abraham was put to sleep. He did not strike, he didn't have a hand in the striking of the covenant. It was all fulfilled on the Lord his God. And so now, the saving of Israel and the establishment of them as his people is still bound on him. And so he fulfills his hesed, his covenant love to his people, because he's loyal to them. But he's loyal to them because he's loyal to himself. And so our blessing, the promises of the covenant, are because God will be glorified. He will not diminish his name or his glory. 
And he has bound all these gifts, all these promises, all these blessings in himself. And he gives them freely to us in sovereign grace. And so he's now giving this love without rebuke because Israel has passed through the waters and the world now sees Israel as the people of God. And if you think that's a stretch, revisit this song of Moses, 14, verse 14. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. And then when you see this in Psalm 77, you can read that later, there's this almost cosmic event because really a recreation is happening. New creation is happening in the people of Israel. And so the psalmist speaks of it almost as if all the earth is being shaken and the seas are rumbling because they were. And I'm actually um, reading in 1 Samuel with my children at night and lo and behold, way in the future, in 1 Samuel, when the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant, they actually say, this is the God who saved Israel out of Egypt. This is the God who judged the gods of Egypt. And so truly the world heard about Israel's redemption from Egypt. And in that redemption, in that salvation, they were established globally as the people of God. It was their identity. In the same way, when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist and he comes up from the waters, the Lord declares over him, this is my son whom I love. This is my son, my, my beloved. And Jesus now has, has the identity before all those witnessing he has this identity, and it's, that, it's with that identity he enters into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. So remember that. Your baptism is this public display of who you belong to. And now that Israel has passed through the waters, the Lord gives his fatherly love and care to his people. His disposition is markedly different. And after the giving of relief, after this merciful relief, after Israel's needs have been met and sweet water has abounded to quench their thirst, he then afterwards gives a statute of grace, a statute of grace. And this is quite interesting. You would almost think the order would be reversed, but it's not. The second half of verse 25 says Starting there, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. The blessings of the covenant do not stop with the relief of sweet water, but they actually continue with the giving of this gracious statue. 
Again, rather than rebuking Israel directly for their grumbling, the Lord follows his mercy with a gracious standard for covenant living. He reminds them of the standard of what belonging to the covenant looks like. In effect, he gently reminds them what is expected of them as his people. Because, again, they belong to him now, and that has been publicly displayed. I'm sure you can imagine a good father whose son is murmuring and complaining. I would imagine a quite small son, but maybe it's a teenager. I'm sure you can imagine a good father whose son is murmuring and complaining of hunger. Even though the father knows dinner will be ready soon. The good father doesn't exasperate his son and refuse to give him food and drink. Instead, he understands the weakness of his son and his immaturity. And he provides for his needs all the while. And then he gives, after providing for his needs, he gives positive correction. Positive correction to his child. Something like, son... I will always make sure you have everything that you need. So long as you trust me and obey me, you will always be blessed in my household. And this is exactly what the Lord is doing with Israel, his people. He's saying, see again my love, my compassion, and my care for you. Have I not already done so much for you? And I will continue to do it because you're mine. But, if you commit to hearing my commands and my statutes, to obeying me, you will have every blessing from under heaven. And I will put none of the judgments that I put on Egypt on you. And so we see now the contrast of God's fatherly disposition with Israel and his judgments against Egypt. He's reiterating the difference between the two. Because during the Exodus, he tells through Moses to Pharaoh, I am making a distinction between Israel and Egypt. I am making a distinction. The Lord has people who are his and people who are not. This is what the Bible calls the righteous and the unrighteous, or the righteous and the wicked. Anyone who does not belong to God in Christ is wicked. Their sins are not forgiven. And so again, in this giving of a gracious statute, God's actually reiterating the distinction between Israel and Egypt. And the Lord is just, and so this is how the distinction is being made. The Lord is perfectly just, and he's always fair to pour out wrath for sin. And so this actually magnifies the distinction, because if you remember, Israel was caught up in Egyptian paganism. They were, not, they were not a people holy unto the Lord. They had been called by him in Abraham, and he was their God because he was the God of their fathers, but they were participating in the sins of Egypt. It wasn't until, well, I'll get to that. This is why Moses had to ask God at the burning bush, who is it that I should say sent me? How are they going to know? Who is it? And he was right to ask. Israel, I believe, had no clue. They knew the stories, 
But we see how easily they fell into worshiping the gods of the nations even when they were in the promised land. So it's not a stretch of the imagination to think they were committing idolatry with the Egyptians. So Moses asks, who is it I should say sent me? And the Lord tells him, I am who I am. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then later, we see the word from Moses to Pharaoh is the Lord says, let his people go that they may serve him. Which is another word to say they may minister to him or worship. Why? Because they weren't doing it in Egypt. They had to come out of Egypt to worship the Lord their God because they were not worshiping him there. And so even in the midst of Israel's idolatry, there was already the fruit of the Lord's favor and his loyalty towards them. You can't miss this. How do we know that? Well, Egypt was judged and they weren't. <laughs> they weren't. And he said, it's because of my covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm redeeming you. The covenant love was already set on them, but they had yet to, to take the identity. And so now that the people have been redeemed, now that they're victory has been accomplished now that they bear the mark of the covenant the sign of the covenant baptism and also circumcision the Lord reminds them what it looks like to belong to them that's what this gracious statute is he's reminding them of what does it look like to belong to them the law proper hasn't come yet the ten commandments have not come yet but he's already been giving them statutes he ordains for them what obeying the Passover looks like and also the subsequent uh festivals during the month of Abib. He tells them all these things. So they, they already have within them this understanding that God's giving us commandments for covenant living, that we might remember him. And so he enables another statute here that they might remember what covenant living looks like. They must obey him, but the blessings are theirs if they do. The blessings are all theirs. Conversely, the Lord met Egypt with just judgments according to their rebellion and idolatry. His wrath was poured out on the people, on the beasts, and on the gods of Egypt. None were spared, for they all lived in contempt against the one true God, and they all dealt treacherously with his people. So just as God's church has been made distinct from her enemies, so too the fruit of covenant living is distinct. Disease and affliction for Egypt, blessing, love and care for Israel. The Lord promises to protect us and preserve us. Why? Why? Because he is our healer. He is our healer. And he says as much here. Truly the Lord heals his people of their bitterness and gives us the sweetness of his covenant promises. They're ours for the taking, church. They're ours for the taking. They have been purchased for us in Christ. And we just have to, in faith, take a hold of them. Take a hold of them. That's what obedience is. It's taking a hold of what's ours in Christ and saying yes to God. 
saying, yes, your ways are higher. Yes, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Yes, you have been my healer. And so I will continue to walk in faithfulness to the covenant, knowing the blessings are mine. And it's these, this is, this is really the heart of this, this point. It's now these blessings, the blessings of the covenant, that are now a test to Israel, as I already alluded to. If we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then surely we will desire to keep covenant. Right? Surely in experiencing the blessings of God, we will desire more, not less. Right? You would think. And therein lies the test. He says, I've given you my very best. Will you continue to trust me? Or will you continue to question me at every step of the way? Murmuring and complaining when things don't go as you think they should. Will you in faith trust my goodness and my grace towards you if we believe that God's ways are better than our own and if our desires are for the things of God rather than the things of earth then we will press into covenant faithfulness we'll press into it because again the promises are ours so the question for us is will we remember Will we remember his loving kindness displayed through glorious deeds and wonders? Or will we forget his covenant promises? Will we be stirred to greater faith and obedience because of his covenant loyalty? Or will we live as if he is not our redeemer, our provider, or our savior? God has so clearly displayed his kindness towards us in Christ. Truly, we have everything we need in the resurrected Messiah. And just like Moses bore the tree to turn bitter waters into sweet waters, Christ bore the tree for us that he might heal us of our bitterness. And, he, and in giving this gracious statue which is nothing but good because God's ways are higher. His commands are in love and are for our good. Nevertheless, in giving that, in reminding the church that I am the Lord, your healer, this happens, this happens. They move on, they move on, and then they come to Elim where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This, this is a bit profound, and I don't think we should miss this. If you know much about the numbers in the Bible, this is quite interesting because there are 12 tribes of Israel, and there are 70 elders that are going to be established. Just as in the New Covenant, there are 12 disciples and at one point, Jesus sends out the 70 to go and preach the gospel throughout all Israel and the Decapolis. So these numbers aren't random, but they're a little picture. They're a little foretaste 
of God supplying our every need always. If you remember at the feeding of the 5,000 and then the second feeding of the 4,000, at the first, the disciples grumble and complain at the needs of the crowd. They say, we should send these people home. They need to go get their own food. We don't have enough. The Lord says, it's too far of a journey. I'll take care of them. And they find a young boy with some fish and some bread, and they pass them out. And everyone is satisfied with fish and bread. But what happens afterwards? Well, the disciples go and pick up the leftovers. And wouldn't you know it, they filled 12 baskets worth of fish and bread. One basket for each of them as a sign that God always, always provides for his people. And this too is a sign that all of Israel will always be taken care of so long as they trust the Lord, their God. They came to 12 springs of water, one for each tribe, and 70 palm trees, shade for every representative, every elder who represents the nation. Because God is good and he sees our needs. He doesn't scoff at us and turn his face away when we come across hunger and thirst. But he cares for us. He cares for us. Why? Because he has struck a covenant with us that we know is completely fulfilled in Jesus the Lord. And because every covenant fulfillment is on him and not us, we walk in the freedom of covenant blessing. It's ours, church. So as we begin to conclude, it has been given to us. The task is ours to remember all that the Lord has done for us and in faith hold on to the promises of what he will do for us. Let us hold on to faith, hope, and love rather than fear, discontentment, and complaining. I mentioned earlier Psalm 77, how it's actually a picture of the Exodus. Listen to this portion of Psalm 77. The psalmist writes, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Sound familiar? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. That psalm starts with him crying in affliction. And it, the transition to remembrance is these verses here. And what are the things he remembers? Israel's redemption from Egypt. That's also for us, church. We have the same blessings. We have been grafted into the tree. We are Israel. Israel is the church. And they're ours. Their story is our story. So when we are thirsty or hungry or have need or want, may we be a people that don't murmur and complain but may we remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old.
See, the glory of God is displayed not only in his cosmic power to save us from our enemies, but also in his care and compassion towards us in giving us sweet water to drink, bread to eat, and the healing of all our diseases. Truly, the Lord is leading us, his redeemed people, in steadfast love, and he is guiding us in, by his strength to his holy abode. The Lord is our healer. Let's pray. Lord, please continue to stir us up by way of reminder that we would hold fast to your promises, that we would cling to your word, knowing that every blessing from the heavens is ours in Christ Jesus. You've given it all. The apostle reminds us, what do we have that we haven't received? Everything truly is a gift. The skill to work, the gift of children and homes, minds to think, voices to sing. It's all from you. Every morsel of bread and every drop of water is from you. You have graciously provided for every single need all along. And so I pray that we would be reminded today of your fatherly disposition towards us because we have been marked as the people of God in Christ Jesus the Lord. Thank you for giving us the fruit of the covenant despite us. Forgive us of our grumbling and complaining and may we set apart our hearts for worship, for trust, and for faithful obedience. I pray that we would honor you as holy always. Be with us, Lord. Continue to sanctify us that you might be glorified among all the world. I pray all this according to the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. Amen.